Please pay careful attention. This is God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is powerful, life-giving, sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts all the way down to the depths of our soul and exposes us before you. So, Father, we pray that today you might do that, that you might open our hearts before you by your word, not simply to leave us open and vulnerable to danger, but rather to draw us near in comfort and to show us your grace and mercy. So, Father, we pray that you would teach us this morning, illumine our hearts and minds to receive your word with faith and with love, to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. And, Lord, in this we pray as always, that you would help us to see Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. If someone were to ask you or say to you, uh, who are you? Tell me about yourself. How, how would you answer that question? Uh, the question of identity can be very, uh, very simple. It can be as simple as giving your name. I'm Dave. That's who I am. Uh, but we know that our identity is fundamentally deeper and more complex than simply our name. But as we read through the scriptures, we see that knowing who we are is essential to our ability to live faithfully in this world. And sometimes there are parts of our identity, aspects of who we are, that create tension, that stir up within us longings that often lie unresolved. 1 Peter, in large part, is a letter to Christians about identity, about who we are. And as he opens this letter, he does so with a greeting that sums up that identity for us. We are, as Peter says, elect exiles, scattered in the dispersion. As we uh, understand and embrace this identity, it's that that enables us to faithfully trust God for grace. Peter writes to people who are suffering, and he's encouraging them to trust God with grace through suffering, to faithfully witness to the grace of Christ in the midst of that, and to faithfully live as God's special people. Uh, that's Peter's goal as he unpacks for us who we are in Christ. And so for the next several months, that's, that's our goal as well as we work through this portion of God's Word. This morning, what I'd like to do is uh, several things. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce us to this idea of what it means to be elect exiles. And then I'd like to look at how this identity of elect exiles is rooted in God's work for us. It's deeply God-centered. And finally, I want us to see the power that God promises us so that we can live faithfully as his elect exiles. So first, let's talk about this identity, this description that Peter gives to uh, Christians in this letter, elect exiles. What does Peter mean? Uh, why does he describe Christians in this particular way? As you know, uh, reading through the Bible, there's lots of ways. There's lots of ways that you could describe 
God's people, lots of labels we could attach to those who follow Jesus. Sometimes Christians are called saints. Sometimes they're called beloved. Sometimes they're called believers. Sometimes they're called disciples or children of God. Peter could have drawn from any of these descriptors and more. But here he chooses to call believers elect exiles. Why this? Why this description? Why this identity? Two reasons uh, I'd like to highlight this morning. One is this is an historical reality that's true to their particular condition in space and time, but it's also a spiritual reality. Let's talk first about the historical reality that these folks were facing as they received this letter. Uh, It's hard to say because we don't have a ton of information, but the best we can figure is that these believers that Peter is writing to, who are kind of spread out in the eastern part of the Roman Empire and what we would today call Turkey, uh, that most of these folks probably had been in Rome at some point and were probably converted to Christ while they were in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles. It's likely that they came into contact with Peter while Peter was in Rome. Church tradition teaches us, uh, without really anything contrary, uh, that Peter was in Rome for some period of time, that he eventually died there uh, for his faith in the Lord Jesus. And so as far as we can tell, these are believers who were converted in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, and who had some sort of pastoral connection with Peter. Well, How did they end up in the eastern part of the empire, these Uh, places, these regions that Peter identifies, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's likely that these folks ended up there because sometime in the early 50s, the emperor Claudius expelled several groups from Rome, including religious minorities like Jews and Christians who, as far as Rome was concerned, they were all the same, but they expelled many, including religious minorities, and sent them to this eastern part of the empire to colonize these five regions that Peter identifies. So they're scattered. They are literally dispersed from their homes in Rome and now scattered across the eastern part of the Roman Empire. They are, in fact, politically, socially, geographically exiles. So it's an historical reality uh, that Peter is addressing them as exiles. Even though many of them might have found their ancestral homelands in these regions, they hadn't lived there, and they were considered foreigners and strangers by the natives in these area, uh, in these areas. They would not have been welcomed, in other words, as citizens, as those who belonged. They did not belong in the places where they lived. And so it's an historical reality, but it's also a spiritual reality. Peter takes their historical situation, their their exiles, they're dispersed across this part of the Roman Empire, and he makes it do double duty, if you will. It describes them literally, but it also describes them spiritually. He's reminding them that this is actually their spiritual identity as well. Uh, We see this in a couple of ways. These, These terms, elect, exiles, the dispersion, All of these are uh, commonly used terms to describe Israel under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament people of God. They were in exile. They were exiles in Assyria, exiles in Babylon, uh, even exiles originally from the Garden of Eden. Uh, They were elect. They were God's chosen people, the ones upon whom he set his love. 
And in the exile, they were scattered. They were scattered out from uh, what we would call Palestine, Israel today. They were scattered all over the Roman Empire. And so these are words that were used to describe God's people under the old covenant. And, and people, uh, Peter, rather, is writing to them as Christians. And he's telling them, your social, political, geographical situation is a picture of your spiritual reality and identity as Christians. You're not home. The place where you are is not ultimately where you, uh, your home is. It's not ultimately where you belong. It's not ultimately where you find your deepest identity and hope. You are not home. You are indeed exiles. Perhaps a better way to describe uh, this word that we this translated as exiles is to say that they are resident aliens and that this is true of all Christians. In other words, for you, for, for me, for all of us as followers of Jesus, uh, you live where you are, but because we belong to Christ, because we anticipate a greater home that is to come, this is not your real ultimate home. You're not tourists, though, right? You're not just coming through for a few days for a bit of entertainment, but you're not truly citizens either. You don't belong here ultimately. We live here, we work here, we worship here, we get married here, uh, we maybe even establish roots and have deep relationships here, but it's not our true home. It's not meant to be. Our identity is rooted elsewhere. Perhaps some of you experienced this maybe as uh, students. If you traveled abroad in college and you went to a foreign culture and you were there on a student visa, or perhaps you've experienced that on a work visa where you go somewhere that's not your normal residence, it's not your place of birth, it's not your culture, and you enter into a foreign culture, you feel this tension. You're there. You're there maybe for an extended period of time, but you feel the reality that this is not your home culture is different. The language is different. The way people communicate and, and interact with each other uh, is, is different. So there's a tension. For these believers that Peter's writing to, and for many today, uh, this tension involves suffering. It involves suffering for the sake of Christ. Their ultimate allegiance to Jesus as Lord often would put them at odds with the powers that be. And that's often true for us today. Anytime our faith calls us to something contrary to the values that are dominant in our culture, we're sticking our necks out. We're drawing attention to the fact that we don't ultimately belong here, that we are foreign citizens in terms of this world. Several years ago, my oldest brother uh, took Karis and me to uh, France and London, along with one of his daughters, for just a quick little trip. And uh, I felt this reality very much when we were in France, especially. Uh, in France, most of the people there, we were in Paris, so they all, they all spoke French and they all spoke English uh, pretty well. I don't speak uh, anything really other than English, so I was a little bit out of sorts. But I would walk into a store, we would walk into a store, and I would do my best to, to greet them in their language, thinking this is a way to, you know, relate. And so they would, I'd walk in and the clerk or whoever would say bonjour, and I'd say bonjour. And they would immediately look at me and go, oh, hello. <laughs> They knew I was not a native French speaker. They knew I didn't belong. I stuck out like a sore thumb. Add to language barrier, barriers all the cultural differences that we face in a foreign culture, and you get an idea of what Peter is describing. And he means it as a spiritual reality for God's people. 
you may have a deep sense of identity where you are. And we'll, we'll talk about this in other parts of this letter, uh, of living in this land and all of the liberties and so forth that we enjoy. You may have a deep sense of that identity that you have, uh, for example, as an American citizen. But you are an exile here. You are a resident alien here. Your primary identity is not your nationality. It is your identity in Christ as those who belong to Jesus. That's primary, and it always has to be primary for us. Sometimes this means that we suffer for it. At other times, it simply means that we're never fully settled and we're never fully at ease here. We should always be longing for our true home, like longing for your bed after a long trip away from home. And you finally get home and you can finally sleep in your pillow. The bed is molded to your body and the way that you sleep, and it just feels right. Some of you know what I'm talking about very keenly because you've been away for a little while. We should always be longing for our true home. And Scripture tells us that our true home is a place where all the wrongs will be made right. Every sorrow will be put away forever. But as exiles here, as those who are resident aliens, we live in between. We live in between the, the lost beauty and unity and harmony of the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem where all that will be restored. And we're shaped by that tension. We're shaped by that longing for the place where all things will be made right came across a good example of this recently in this book, Lament for a Son, uh, by Nicholas Walterstorff. I think I'm saying his name right. Uh, this is an incredible book. I would commend it to you as just a, a, a deeply moving account of um, his grief. He and his wife uh, lost an adult son, and he wrote this book to try to work through some of that. It's very moving. In, this, in, uh, in the book, he describes kind of what it's like to live with that grief and kind of how, how it shapes us. And he says this about it. Um, he talks about the value of grief and how it points to the uh, worth and value of the one who has been lost, the one who was loved. And he says, so I own my grief. I do not try to put it behind me to get over it or to forget it. I do not try to disown it. If someone asks, who are you? Tell me about yourself. I say, not immediately, but shortly. I am one who lost a son. That loss determines my identity, but not all of my identity, but much of it. Lament is part of life. And then he says this, and I think this captures part of what it means to be a resident alien, to be in exile longing for our true home. He says this, every lament is a love song. Every lament is a love song. It's a longing for our true home where all things will be made right. And then he, and he says, I'll kind of rephrase the way he puts this last line, but he says, one day all love songs will no longer be lament. Peter is writing to people whose primary identity is in Jesus. They literally are not home. 
They've been scattered abroad from the place where they have lived, where they have established roots, relationships, labor, and so forth. They've been expelled from Rome and sent to foreign parts, as far as they're concerned, of the Roman Empire. And Peter looks at them and says, that's true of you as a believer of Jesus, in Jesus Christ, no matter where you are. No matter how many generations your people have been in a place, no matter how, deep your, no matter how deeply your roots have been established, you are always in exile, always a resident alien until the Lord Jesus brings us home. We feel that as we live as those who belong somewhere else and stick our necks out and stand out as followers of Jesus seeking to be holy. Uh, we feel that in every loss and every grief that we experience because we know this is not the way things ought to be and that one day Jesus will make all things right. So we're exiles. We're resident aliens. We have a home, but this isn't it. And that makes it sometimes very difficult to live in that identity. We feel pulled. We feel conflict between these different aspects of who we are and how we think about ourselves. And so, just briefly, um, Peter gives us three truths, three truths that remind us of our identity, how it is God-centered, it's the work of God, and he reminds us of the power that God gives us to live faithfully as exiles, because it is difficult. So I want to look at these three things just briefly. The source of our identity, the special nature of our identity, and the seal of our identity. And now, just point out briefly, the Trinitarian nature of this work, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, all are involved in the work of redemption in different ways, but it's the work of the, uh, the whole Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Notice he highlights first God's choice, the electing love of the Father. He says they are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter is reminding us that our identity is rooted in God's sovereign, free, and unchanging choice of his people. When we talk about foreknowledge, when, when the Bible talks about foreknowledge, uh, it's not talking about God getting like a sneak peek and then making his decision based on the sneak peek. He doesn't look ahead and say, oh, Dave's going to be, he's going to be a good one. I want him on uh, Team God, so I'm going to pick him because I can see how good he's going to be. That's not the way foreknowledge or election works. It's God's choice to place his love upon his people. It's an eternal choice. It goes back in eternity, which we can't even measure, to love a people, to make a people his own, to set his name upon them and claim them as his special possession. You can see the beauty of this all throughout the scripture but particularly in Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, where the Lord is speaking to his people and he's reminding them of their call to be holy, to be his special people. And he says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. There it is, his electing love. He's chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, which raises the question, why these people? Why, why, why you as God's people? Why would God choose to love you? And here's what he says. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Okay, it's not that. What is it? It is because the Lord loves you. 
Now that seems a little bit circular. Why does God love you? He loves you because he loves you. Well, I need a reason. I need a list. I need some things that I've done that have merited God's love. And that's not the way God's love works. And that's good news. God's love is given to his people, not on the basis of things we do, but on the basis of his free choice to love. And that means it's a love that never changes. I love this because it's kind of a reminder of the way love works uh, among people. If you were to ask uh, husbands and wives, you know, why do you love your spouse? Uh, you know, there might be reasons that kind of initially generated an interest, initially generated attraction, but most often those are reasons that can change, you know, over time. They ebb and flow, they wax and wane. Uh, but at the end of it, that kind of love often ends up being non-rational. <laughs> that doesn't mean irrational, although sometimes you might look at couples and go, wow, that's crazy. Uh, you don't understand it, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's non-rational for us. Uh, we want to have a list. Well, I love you because you do this well, and you do this well, and you do this well. But that's not how God's love for us works. His love is a choice, a free choice, given to us, not because of anything that we've done to earn it, but in spite of all the things that disqualify us from it. And if he's freely chosen us according to foreknowledge, uh, his predetermined love for us, then he won't remove his love from his people. And so that helps us live as exiles in this world. Secondly, the special nature of our identity, that we are set apart by the Spirit. This indicates both that we're set apart to be holy, uh, we're sanctified by the Spirit uh, for that goal of living in a way that honors God. With our words, our thoughts, and our actions, we're meant to be holy unto Him, not living according to the changing standards all around us, but seeking to live in a manner worthy of our calling as God's children, to reflect him as our father. But it's also a way of saying that he has set us apart and made us special by his spirit so that we might live in a way that honors him. You can see this in Daniel, for example, in exile in Babylon. Uh, he's literally in exile, and he is living in a way that makes him stand out among the the all the others among whom he's living. He's set apart by God's Spirit and then living in a way that is holy. The Spirit has set you apart and therefore he equips you to live faithfully as an exile in this world, as a resident alien. Then finally, the seal of our identity, the work of Christ. Peter describes this uh, in two ways. Uh, literally, it should say that he has... Um, we are elect exiles for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. Part of what Peter is uh, kind of hearkening back to is an Old Testament ceremony you can read about in Exodus 24, where all of the representatives of God's people were gathered. Moses sacrificed animals, spilled their blood, and uh, you know, caught the blood in a, in a bowl, and he sprinkled the altar, and then he called the people to commit themselves to God, to the Lord who had rescued them out of Egypt. And they respond to this call from Moses by saying, yes, we are going to obey all that God has told us to do. And Moses then takes the remainder of the blood that's left over and he sprinkles it on the people. It's pretty weird. Why is he doing it? It's a way of saying, 
that if they don't keep their part of this agreement, if they don't follow through with obedience, then blood has to be shed for their sins. God provides for that blood with substitutes, so it's not their blood, but the blood of bulls and goats to this shed for the forgiveness of sins. Because you know the story of the Old Testament is not a story of a faithful people. It's a story of a wandering people. It's a story of a rebellious people who again and again forsake their God, the one who loved them, the one who rescued them. They wander again and again from him. And yet God had placed his covenant love upon them through this ceremony. And Peter is telling these believers and telling us that we too have been brought into covenant relationship with the Lord. But we see this relationship in a new way with the coming of Christ. Because as Peter indicates here, it's not the blood of bulls and goats that's shed. It's the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That we've been brought in not because we've pledged to be obedient, a pledge that we cannot keep. We've been brought in because Jesus pledged in our place to be obedient for us. So that all the ways that we fail, he has given us righteousness to cover over our failures. And when we do fail, which we do often, he gave his life on the cross. His blood was shed to cleanse us from our sins, to wash us clean so that we can know we are forgiven through his sacrifice for us. You see, Jesus, Peter is indicating in these words, uh, Jesus is the ultimate elect exile. Jesus is the one chosen by the Father in eternity past to represent all of his people as our Redeemer. Jesus is the one set apart by the Spirit so that all of his work is sanctified and holy and perfect before his Father. Jesus is the one who is cast into exile, voluntarily leaving the glory and the throne of heaven to take on our flesh, to enter into this world that he made. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but to all who received him, he gave the authority, the right to be called children of God. And Jesus ultimately exiled on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For you, Christ is the exiled one for our sin so that we might be redeemed and brought back home and given a hope that cannot fail. Peter reminds us that while it's hard to live as resident aliens in this life, he's given us a God-centered identity, chosen by the Father in love, set apart by the Holy Spirit, and cleansed and forgiven through the work of Jesus on our behalf. And then he promises this power, Grace and peace. Don't you love the way this ends? He doesn't just say grace and peace be with you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May they be abundant so that whatever you face, you have the promise and the assurance that there is grace for you. However you stumble, however dark things get, there is grace for you. No matter how rocky your circumstances are, no matter how uh, seemingly... Uh, unanchored we feel in our lives, there's peace from God that surpasses all understanding. It's multiplied. It's ours in abundance. You are called to remember, we are called to remember that we are resident aliens, chosen by God, set apart by his spirit, 
cleansed by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that as we remember that identity, this is not our home. We're called to walk faithfully before him. C.S. Lewis uh, writes in his, his sermon, The Weight of Glory, about kind of this longing and this tension and this waiting for being brought back home. And he says this, says, at present we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all of the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday we shall get in. Part of what that means for us today is that we are called by Jesus to be comfortable with being uncomfortable where we are, to remember that this is not ultimately our home, that we belong somewhere else, but God has placed us here, and so it's going to be uncomfortable at times, and we need to settle into that, to just embrace this reality that we will be uncomfortable in this world as we live faithfully for Jesus. But we can know and settle into this because though we are in exile, we have this wonderful truth. The Father has chosen us in love, that he has sealed us and set us apart with his spirit, and that he has sealed us with the blood and righteousness of Jesus and gives us an abundance of grace and peace so that we can live faithfully as we long for that day when we shall finally arrive home. Would you pray with me?